Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Great to have you back in the in the studio. And you were telling me you still haven't managed to get on a race course yet. No, unfortunately not. Um, but hopefully it won't be very long. I think I've earmarked Sandown's Brigadier and Gerard meeting. Fingers crossed there. Um, but first time back in this very new fancy studio for me. Last time I was in here, I think it was... November all looked a little bit different. I know it did look a bit different. Everything was different. The world <laughs> was different all the way back then, 18 months or so ago. I I mean, I'm taking it for granted. I've been racing, I don't know, 200 times or whatever since lockdown started. How difficult and painful has it been for you just sitting there on the on the sidelines yeah. having to wait? I have found it quite difficult. I think all of us, you know, we've obviously found this period quite a challenging one, but uh, racing is our, our livelihood and what we love to do. And I, I have really missed just that act of going racing, the buzz of it um, and the occasion. But, you know, we've had to put other things um, first and fingers crossed it won't be long hopefully in a bit we'll talk about more people returning to the race course and what to expect in the next couple of weeks and general sense of optimism I think that the sport is reasonably placed yeah I think so um, you know we don't know too much about uh, an exit strategy if you want to call it in at least publicly anyway but I'm sure these conversations are happening behind closed doors you know racing um, when it initially returned was absolutely fantastic and has been brilliant throughout the whole pandemic with regards to, you know, the protocols, etc. Although I personally haven't been able to um, to see them for myself. The feedback mm -hmm. I've got from the trainers, owners and jockeys I've been speaking to has all been very, very good. So, yeah. And we're now in the thick of Derby trial season. I know we're going to talk about it a little bit later on. And Roger Varian, who's had such a good week and has won two of the Derby trials, the D-Stakes and the Lingfield Derby trial, will be will be on the line. Has there been anything that's really put his or her head above the parapet and said to you, I am a classic contender? I really liked the performance yesterday um, at Lingfield Third Realm. I just loved the way he seemed to travel around Lingfield and all the undulations come down the hill. Um, and then he just... He seemed to have that instant turn of foot when he was rounding that bend and then just saw it out really well. He looks a very well-balanced horse. Um, and I think maybe, you know, I think he was 100 to 1 beforehand, not necessarily the classic contender people were expecting to see at Lingfield yesterday. But I think he's a very credible one, nevertheless. Yeah, he was cut to 16 to 1, and that 16 to 1 disappeared quite quickly. I think the horse who, who Charlie Appleby trains, who was second, is a, still a pretty highly regarded horse. Yeah, and I think Charlie's not had maybe the best of weeks. He had a few horses disappoint at Chester, but that um, Adi Yar, he, yeah, he ran a really eye-catching race in the Sandown trial, didn't he? Went second to Alan Kerr and uh, beautiful big horse, and I think there'll be more to come from him later course, on in the season. Everything's changed all of a sudden because we've gone from weeks and weeks and weeks of fast ground to you know, 20 mils of rain before yesterday and everything's turned to a quagmire all of a sudden it makes life pretty difficult yeah and how many meetings were there yesterday nine i think so it's a lot that we've got to keep up with but chester's may meeting is one of my favorites and i really enjoyed watching that midweek 
Of course, back in the day, if you were a rider, you might have been able to ride at, at more than one of those meetings. You can't now, and that's all as a result of the protocols that came in uh, because of COVID. But what is the immediate future for the stars of the sport, the men and women who ride the horses day in, day out? And how well are they looked after by the sport as a whole? Well, the new chairman of the Professional Jockeys Association is a man who has nurtured the careers of top sports stars and top broadcasters over many, many decades. He is now charged with nurturing careers of the most important uh, segment of, uh, of this sport, uh, those stars uh, aboard the horses. He is John Holmes and he joins me now. John, good morning. Good morning. Um, what prompted you to, to take on this role? You've done just about everything in, in sports and media. Why did you want to, to look after the well-being of the riders? As you say, Nick, I've, um, I'm pretty old now. Uh, I've spent the last 50 years working in sport, all sorts all manner of sports, mostly British sports, it has to be said, trad British sports. I've worked in football, rugby, cricket, and so on. Uh, but I've always been interested in racing. I've been an owner now for uh, 20 years. And um, uh, so when I was approached about this, I was, uh, I was interested because my belief has always been that it's the stars of the sport, those who, uh, those who play it, uh, uh, that is to say, uh, in football, it's actually the players. Racing's a bit more difficult, isn't it? Because you've got uh, the stars are the horses. You said the major stars are the jockeys, which was interesting. I've always believed that the future of the sport depends on the way the stars of the sport project themselves to the public. People really, really, and especially children, I mean, what we need to do most people get involved in sport in early age. It's unusual for people to come to sport after they're 25 or 30. Most people come to sport as kids. They, uh, they watch footballers uh, on the TV and they're their heroes. So they watch jockeys. Uh, they see Frankie de Tori. Uh, and, of course, this, uh, this uh, winter, we've seen Rachel Blackmore uh, and we've seen uh, Bryony Frost take uh, a sort of front role in, in racing. And I can't imagine how many girls there are out there now who fostered and developed a real uh, enthusiasm and interest in the sport because of what they've done. Do you believe that the, the success of Rachel Blackmore, Bryony Frost, Holly Doyle, do you believe that is a watershed moment for the sport? Or, or do you believe that that is slightly concealing um, an inequality, if you like, amongst amongst the top level jockeys. Do you believe that it, it's real this breakthrough or not? I think one, uh, of course, yes, it's both. Seventeen percent of the jockeys are female at the moment. We have to examine why it's only seventeen percent. Uh, we have to examine what it's going to be. Let us say in five years' time, what happens when the when the teenagers uh, or the even younger children uh, now decide that that racing is a career for them, what happens then? And uh, I think that will be the test. Uh, and it's a test of the facilities that we have and the way they're treated. At the moment, we certainly, what we don't have is an equality of facilities. And I think it's very much up to the industry 
uh, how it behaves in that respect. At a lot of race courses around the country, the facilities for jockeys, uh, and especially female jockeys, are not uh, consistent with 2021. They're, they're more like the 1950s or the early 1960s, and we need to uh, get those facilities up to uh, up to standard and make sure that we're looking after the young stars of the sports properly as well, because there is still an issue with how we treat apprentices and conditionals. And that's that was really the driving force behind me saying to uh, to uh, the PJA when they approached me through the previous chairman. Uh, Nigel Payne, being a friend of mine for a long time, Paul Struthers, the chief executive, and, and Robin Leach, a non-executive director, they approached me and uh, I took time to think about it and thought, yes, uh, I'd like to have a go. I've taken it on an interim basis to see how it goes, whether they like me, whether the sport likes me, uh, and to see if I can make a real difference. You mentioned the treatment of apprentices and conditionals, John. Just put some, some meat on the bones there for me and, and say why you, you, you find uh, that unsatisfactory at the moment. Under BHA rules, all apprentices, conditionals, are meant to be subject to full-time employment contracts. Now, we know that they're not. We know that there are certain trainers who are not employing the, their conditionals, their apprentices, on full-time contracts. And we need that to be enforced. And I'm looking to the PJA to make sure that it is enforced. I'm looking to the NTF to make sure that their members are treating conditionals and apprentices correctly, uh, that they are subject to contracts. I, a case was brought to my attention in the last week of a young man, he's he's quite well known. I'm not going to mention his name because that would be invidious, but he is apprenticed to a, a well-known trainer. Uh, this trainer does not employ him on a full-time basis. He is only paid when he rides. He's not paid for riding out. He tried to get a mortgage. He has no payslip, no contract, in order to help him get his first mortgage. And I'm afraid this sort of thing, which has been going on for some time, needs to stop. And we need to, for the NTF and the BHA, to take action to make sure that this is not right and put right. Put right. So there needs to be better treatment of the young apprentices, the conditional jockeys, better treatment of female jockeys on race courses. Do you think overall, John, there needs to be a a more coherent mentoring system for young riders as they come through the system? And would you seek to put your experience from, from other sports to, to use there? Hopefully I can do, yes. Um, when I first got involved in football, uh, which was uh, in the early 70s, um, players uh, were just emerging from the old maximum wage system. Uh, but at the same time, it was still a very paternalistic system. Uh, at negotiations between the club and the player, the player wasn't allowed to have representation. Uh, and I came across numerous instances where players have been exploited. They've been told, this will happen. This is what we do, son. Uh, you should accept this and so on. 
only for them to come into my office a few weeks later and say they've cheated me. Uh, they said this would happen, uh, but it isn't happening. And um, I found that pretty disgraceful. The first time I negotiated in earnest uh, on a player's uh, negotiations was when Peter Shilton, who was the England goalkeeper at that time, moved to Stoke City uh, from Leicester City. Uh, the fee involved was £340,000. Uh, we met at a uh, hotel in Northamptonshire, and the, um, the manager of Stoke, Tony Waddington, a lovely man, came in with the secretary, uh, the assistant secretary, uh, and a director, and said, you're not allowed to be here to me. So Peter quite rightly said, well, if he's not allowed to be here, then um, I'm going. <laughs> so we changed, and I negotiated hard, and we uh, we got him a very, very lucrative contract. Um, the fact that the club uh, probably weren't as, uh, let's say, up, up to speed on certain aspects of employment law at that time, as I possibly was, even though I was quite green, uh, meant the fact that we got an exceptionally good contract, and uh, it moved on from there. Um, I, I've negotiated with uh, Brian Clough and Alex Ferguson. Uh, that's that's quite interesting. Uh, first time I met uh, Brian Clough, I was uh, I was uh, 26. Uh, he was uh, 46, and he was a very frightening man uh, when he wanted to be. Uh, but again, uh, we stuck out. We got uh, we got a deal uh, for Peter then. And, of course, it's developed now, and it could be said that the, the players are now in control of uh, that sort of situation. But, of course, it's the players that have grown the sport. If you look in all sports, people do not really identify with owners and, uh, and uh, managers. The people they love, the people that get us involved with sport, we all have our own sporting heroes. Uh, and uh, it's the sporting heroes, the people who play the sports, and in racing, of course, it is horses and it's jockeys. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I'm not very good at talking to horses, so uh, I'm trying to talk to and on behalf of jockeys. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by our Bastiat Cruel Dubai. And I asked you at the beginning of the programme about the about the Derby and Oaks trials, and you were you were quite taken with uh, with Third Realm in yesterday's Lingfield trial. I was. I think that as two year olds, it was quite a mucky picture, wasn't it, with who the real superstars are. Um, and again, he came from pretty much nowhere um, to to now be what as short as ten to one, even shorter now. I think Third Realm, um, just a really nice, likable horse. And Lingfield, we saw Anthony Van Dyke, obviously win that trial high rise in the same colours I think 1998 was it um, also at Lingfield so although the trial is I think in the last couple of years it's gained popularity again as regards to Epsom um, but this was a really nice performance and as you say they think a lot of the second horse he was really well supported so the fact that this horse being so inexperienced could beat him um, is really promising. We expected Coolmore to strengthen their derby hand this week. They didn't really. We expected Godolphin to strengthen their derby hand this week. They didn't really. Roger Varian, however, did. With El Drama in the D-Stakes, third realm in the derby trial, he's got Royal Champion in the Dante as well. He joins me on the line now. Roger, good morning. Good morning, Nick. 
that's a, a lovely strong hand. Uh, when you went into these two trials this week, is is that what you anticipated? Um, we're probably cautiously optimistic by nature, Nick. So uh, until you get on track and run and uh, see how they perform, uh, try not to think too far ahead of a day. But, you know, El Drama is a horse we've always liked uh, from day one. Um, he won his only start at two, but that was no surprise. Um, his homework had been very good. You know, we went through the winter thinking, how could we get this inexperienced horse uh, to shape up like a guineas colt and uh, and needed to get some experience into him. So we got him started early and he went to Lingfield over seven furlongs and kept in a mile. Didn't quite show himself to be a Guineas candidate, but he was working very well at home. And I think uh, after his Kempton run, we couldn't wait to get him on onto turf and uh, you know step up to a mile and a quarter suited him as well. And you you mentioned after the race that you thought that um, Shanti would be the the option for for El Drama. Are you are you still minded that way? I think so. Yes, I think uh, that was. Um, that was Sheikh Mohammed Obeid's uh, view, you know, immediately after the Chester race. I think Andrea, as soon as he jumped off him, you know, he got the impression that he, he didn't think he needed to go, um, you know, to be stretching out beyond 10 furlongs for now. And uh, I wasn't at Chester that day, but that was my visual impression of a horse as well. Mm. He travelled very strongly, put the race to bed quite nicely, but didn't scream uh, a mile and a half at me, not just yet. So I, I would think it's most likely he'd head uh, for the jockey club in France. And, of course, it helps when you've got other strings to your derby bow. It's an easier decision to make, I suppose. We were saying how impressed we were by, by third realm uh, Lingfield yesterday. He does look like he'll stay as far as you want him to. Yeah, he looks like um, you know a mile, a mile and a half uh, should be well within his compass. Very delighted with his performance yesterday. And, um, you know, I guess he's... Uh, you know, he's ticked a few boxes regarding his participation at Epsom. You know, let's hope he's, um, you know, stays sound and healthy over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and Roger, I mean, this was an incredible performance, but also the dam. You had Kate Byron winning as well, having a horse win over six furlongs and then another horse winning a derby trial over a mile and a half. That, that must show that this horse has some pretty good inherent speed as well. Good point. Yeah, room three, she's been a remarkable mare. I think she's bred five or six, uh, rated over 100 now. And, um, you know, we've had two two from her very good horses, Kate Byron, who's obviously, you know, specialises over six and seven furlongs, but we trained Adman Princess, who who won over a mile and a half and won a group one over a mile and a quarter. So she can obviously, um, you know, throw them over, you know, with speed and stamina. And I think... Um, you know, th third realm, he's always looked a middle distance prospect to us. And I've got no doubt that he'll stay a mile and a half well. Um, Roger, um, the horse you run in the Dante this week, Royal Champion, you and I spoke after the horse had won at, uh, at Newmarket. And you were, you were very hopeful that he'd make up into a, into a good horse. Have you saved the best till last? We'll see how he goes in the Dante, Nick. I mean, he, he's a horse we think very highly of. And I don't think I've ever made a, a secret of that. Um, we were satisfied uh, without being thrilled with his reappearance running the field and stakes. Um, but he he looks to have come on from that in his uh, you know in his work uh, at home. He looks in great nick, and uh, we're very much looking forward to running him at York uh, next week.
Okay, well, I, I detect a, a decent level of positivity, and I think you can go into York sufficiently buoyed by, by, uh, by what you've seen. And and your your runner-up in the in the Oaks trial yesterday must have pleased you. Yeah, she's a lovely filly, and she's done nothing but improve uh, with every start. Um, actually, watching the race, I thought she was going to win most of the way up the straight, and just didn't quite uh, manage to do so. Callum thought she got a little bit unbalanced in the straight. Um, hit one of the, the ridges wrong and uh, just sort of threw off her stride at a vital moment. But she finished her race off off very well and um, she took another step step forward in terms of uh, you know the level of form um, that she's showing. And I should think she's a type of filly who will keep improving you know all year. That's Saber Forest I'm talking about. What will your Oaks contingent look like? Do you think who will you who will you be reliant on? Well, it's all got to unfold still, Nick. Um, she ran very well, say, the forest. Um, but I would think at this stage of Ribbles, they will be a more more likely fit for her. Um, I thought Zayadar ran a lovely race at Chester last yep. week, uh, carrying a penalty and, you know, not, not having a clear passage when she needed it. Um, I'm not saying she would have won, but she'd have gone jolly close. I think uh, if Jim could have got out, to have it, you know, when he wanted to, I thought that was a very good... Um, performance from her she'd only really just started to click you know a week or 10 days before that race so i've got no doubt she'll improve a fair bit for the run you know she she, she could go to epsom she could go to ascot for the ribblesdale you know she might uh, be suited to the diane in france over over 10 furlongs and you know we're we're just happy to sit on her um, over the next fortnight see how the other trials look see how she responds in her training at home and sort of keep an open mind on her. So, you know, she, she's a possible for Epsom, but not not a definite at this stage. And um, and we run a filly called Tiona in the Musadora Stakes this week at York. And, you know, she'd be a, a filly we, you know, we, we, we hold in high regard and, um, you know, would see how she fares uh, at York on Wednesday before making any, any further plans for her. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Well, it was announced in the Sun yesterday the retirement of three of Jump Racing's most popular horses, Benedigia and Duvan, but topping virtually every National Hunt horse in popularity, the great Faheen. They have all been uh, retired by owners Rich and Susanna Ritchie, and Rich joins me on the line now. Morning, Rich. A sort of bittersweet phone call, this, I guess. Good morning, Nick. Good morning, Maddie. What do you hear? What do you say? Um... <laughs> It's uh, not, not particularly bittersweet, actually. You know, it's, it's probably like you, I, I think about it like you think about humans. They, they all had what you wish for everybody who, who you know, uh, goes to work and has a great career and retires in one piece. Um, it's time, really, isn't it? I mean, we were hoping for, for one last go with them all this season. But um, look, they got out in one piece. They're all healthy. It was a fantastic run. And uh, no, I'm, I'm just really happy with the memories, I suppose. I mean, let's talk about um, Faheen first, because... This is a horse that captured a lot of people's hearts. What was it about him, do you think, that made him so popular? I think it was the fact that he was he was a trier, first and foremost. And, you know, he wasn't, was he, the most elegant at his hurdles or at his fences. He'd put your heart in his mouth with some of his jumps. But he just kept going. And I also think the fact that he was such a nice person. You know, he was a, he was a lovely horse. Um, thought of himself as a dude. I think he knew he was a dude. But, but he was... Um, very happy to, to meet people, very friendly horse. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the Fahim, the machine sort of nickname helped. And, mm. 
he was just he was just a lovely fella, and I think he was big and sort of clumsy and all that sort of stuff was endearing. And um, he was uh, he was magic, wasn't he? Do you think it was the fact that there was a little bit of fallibility and that he kept coming back? Do you think that sort of massively enhanced his popularity? That's a much more eloquent way of saying what I was trying to say. I think that, <laughs> that, that fallibility is right. And, you know, the fact that he did come back so many times. I mean, he, he wasn't blessed with the best of health during his career. Um, you know, I always forget, I always, pardon me, I always remember that, that, you know, when he was pulled up at Aintree and uh, about two hours after the race, I went up into the, into the barn to see him. And he, he, he had that look on his face like he let you down. <laughs> And um, I think a lot of people thought that was the end. And, of course, he came back and, and ran at Punchestown and came back and had that wonderful novice chase season. And the, his victory at, at uh, Leopardstown at the Dublin Racing Festival last season, I mean, there were so many tears in the winner's enclosure. You practically needed a mop and a bucket. And I don't suppose you or anybody else connected with a horse would remind me so, would mind me saying so. Have you, have you experienced many better days than that on a race course? Um, that was close. I mean, a a Annie Power, when she came back and won the, 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 the champion hurdle, was, mm. was an unbelievable day. Just the whole, you know, retribution and kind of thing. And th that was magic. But I think with Fahim, the willing of the crowd, willing him home to win, and the easy game was closing with every stride, I had never seen anything like that where they were running back to the parade ring. I mean, I couldn't get there myself. I was being stopped and hugged by people and hands being shaken and cheers from the crowd. It was unbelievable. And to go in there and see John Codd, who looked after the horse so brilliantly all those years, and everybody around it, and it was the only time, the only time I saw Willie just about to crack because he's quite unemotive on the horses. But you're right, there was plenty of tears that day, and even Willie was touched. And where is Fahim going to go now? Well, the, the Irish National Stud has been on, um, and um, that would be an ideal home for him because he is so popular. Um, I think people would like to go see him. I think people would like to go have a word with him. And uh, lovely, lovely for them as well. You know, it's, a, it's another reason for people to come. So I think that's where he will head. Excellent. And what about Benny Dejou? Any plans to put her in full? Yes, I think Benny Dejou, I think what he was talking about, um, crossing her with a uh, walk in the park, um, which would be nice. Um, so that's kind of the plan of something anyway. We'll, we'll, we'll put her in full anyway and see what we do from there. But hopefully that's successful. So Benny Dejou to be covered. And, and Duvan? Duvan. My Marlon Brando horse. Yeah. Um, if he could talk, I think he'd be saying, I could have been a contender. All that great talent and, um, and just riddled with injuries and bad luck. Uh, Duvan, we'll find a home for Duvan. I, I, we've got no plans left. He's still in the yard at Willie's and... We'll find him a nice home um, and, and see where we go from there. But um, another, all three lovely horses to, to, to have. Do you think Duvan was the best horse you've ever owned? Could have been. <laughs> um, could have been. I think he had the most talent. I remember Willie saying that. And Willie's not prone to hyperbole. And I remember Willie saying that, you know, he thought he was the best horse he ever trained. And, uh, you know, that it was, he was never the same since um, we, we fell foil again to, to Henry de Bromhead in the champion chase with him. <laughs> when he was beat as an odds-on favorite. Sounds very familiar. Um, uh, so when he was beat as an odds-on favorite there and he got hurt, he, he wasn't quite the same. But for that one glimmering moment when he came back, was it the next year or the year after? In the, the year, I think it was Al Altior's second victory. Yeah. He was flying. And um, you thought, wow, he still has it. But even, you know, to, to his talent, even when he won his, his last run at the Conwell Oil Chase, you know, even that day, you know, he was just magnificent. And clearly the horse with the most talent, I think. And you've got such exciting horses to look forward to as well. How are your two big stars at the moment, Jacques Ampoussois and, and Monkfish, and 
What are the plans for them? Jacques Porcois is, is very well. He does get, get a well-earned summer off. We still don't know what happened at, at Cheltenham. He was flat that day. Willie insists it wasn't the hill. Um, I hope he's right. I hope we get another crack at it next year. Um, he'll you know, just enjoy his summer halls and come back next year, probably a similar path to what he did this year. Um, Monkfish was, was, was disappointing at Punchestown. Wasn't the same as last two runs, was he, um, as he was in his first three of the season. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll give him a proper MOT over the summer. I don't think there's anything wrong. Maybe it's just one of those days. But he also got beat by a, a good filly um, at, uh, at, at Punchestown. And um, he'll have his summer off as well and hopefully come back a bit stronger and maybe be able for a, a, a you know, more of a, of a, of a proper season as in, in open company now. And um, looking forward to that. But it's, uh, hopefully we can unearth a couple that replace these three. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Well, I'm really pleased as I welcome you back to, to this week's edition to be joined now by uh, Bob Champion, who has been walking, walking and walking some more to raise yet more funds for the prolific Bob Champion Cancer Trust, which to date has raised over £15 million in research, not just into testicular cancer, but also really important studies into prostate cancer, working very closely with the Royal Marsden Hospital, which treated Bob in Sutton and Surrey. And we're going to find out a little bit more about Bob's endeavours now. Um, morning, Bob. How are you feeling? I'm feeling not too bad at all, actually. A little bit stiff, but, um, you know, um, I've had a bad back most of my life, actually. So um had falls early on in my career and um, broke a few bones there, but um, it's going all right. And, um, you know, it is fun, but, um, you know, people think 191 miles isn't far. It isn't on the roads and everything. You try walking up all these gallops. I promise you they're steep. <laughs> and you've still got a fair little way to go as well for this final leg this week. And it's got a, it's got a really apt conclusion, this, this series of walks, hasn't it? Just tell us what you're going to do at the end of it. Well, we're going back to um, Finden, where Nick Gifford trains now, Josh Gifford trained then. I'm going to sit back on a horse, actually, and I'm really looking forward to it, riding up from the village back to the yard. I can remember when the old horse came back to Finden after winning the national. Um, there was about thousands of people came to see him come back, and we walked the horse all the way up from the village. Well, I'm going to ride it this time, but I'll still walk around the gallops. I've got... About 26 miles to go, um, which doesn't sound too much, but I promise you, up all these steep gallops, it is. Yeah, the, the last 26 miles are going to be the hardest 26 miles. I'm just looking at your schedule this week. You're going to Chris Gordon, Barkfold Manor, which is where um, Alden Eti recuperated, of course, in the summers with the, the Embricos family. Gary Moores, David Menuisier, Amanda Perrett at Pulborough, Luke Dace, Richard Rowe, your, your old pal who rode Alden Eti a couple yeah. of times, Susie Smith, and then, and then Nick Gifford, the, the Downs at Finden to, to round off. Now, I said at the beginning of the interview, Bob, you've raised over £15 million over the years for the Bob Champion Cancer Trust. It's an extraordinary effort. But there are some serious, palpable and tangible um, fruits of your labour. Uh, tell me a little bit about Professor Colin Cooper and what he's doing at the research unit at, at Norwich University. Well, uh, Colin, an absolute genius, actually, because um, we did build another research laboratory up in Norwich. And to me, that's the bee's knees. And we're looking really into prostate cancer. And we are coming up with the goods uh, virtually. Now we can um, tell how bad the prostate is by just a simple urine test. 
And, you know, basically we'll soon be able to um, diagnose these sort of things. We're just like um, you do take a COVID test type of thing. Um, we are getting there. And it was great to walk around the Royal Marsden yesterday. The professors were telling me um, what we were doing in certain units. And it was nice to go back to our own unit. Um, the money is being well spent and we're doing an awful lot of good with it. And, and I, I gather that, you know, with a lot of what you've achieved over the last few years and the, some of the science that has um, has been supported by your, your trust has, has led to not the eradication, but the significant reduction in cases of testicular cancer to the point where you're now moving into into other areas. Oh, good God, yes, we, we moved into prostate, you know. If I'd had my um, cancer um, 18 months before, I would have been dead through research. Um, I'm alive, but they only gave me a 30% chance. But what we've done with testicular cancer, we've taken it to about 95% full recovery. You know, research is very, very important in life. And uh, myself, um, you know, my back's been killing me. Before I started, I had a couple of scans. And um, they've told me I've got a tumour on one of my kidneys. So when the, all this is over, I've either got to have a kidney out or part of a kidney out. But, you know, research... I wouldn't have known anything about it if it wasn't for research, and I'll have the op and I'll be fine after. So you've obviously now then, Bob, got a, another, another massive challenge ahead, but how much is it, is it helping you through the knowledge that, that you've acquired in the last 40 years? I think it's helped, you know, because, um, you know, if I can, well, my cancer trust can help one person live, I'm very happy, but I know we've help thousands and thousands throughout the world and the new prostate thing i think you know is going to save billions throughout the world um you know the scientists are doing a terrific job uh, my cancer trust doing his little bit and um you know we've been very fortunate on this walk you know we've had good sponsors like the wasdell group have been very good and george smith and his horse box um i asked him if he'd lend me a horse box to go around and he said, of course it would. And um, I rang his girlfriend, Susie, who uh, also sponsored. And um, she rang me back and said, um, have, can we have a look at your driving license? I said, yes. Then they said, well, you haven't had a medical. So basically, George has driven it all the way around and really enjoyed himself. And uh, he's got as fit as me. But I can remember we walked around Clive Cox's yard the other day with John Frankham. And um, John walked around and said, John, would you like to come for another walk with me? He said, only if it's around Newmarket because it's flat. <laughs> well, it's, it's quite extraordinary what you, you've done, not just this last few weeks, but over the last 40 years. Um, Bob, I know that you've got the small matter of, of 26 miles ahead. Um, all the best with that. And most importantly of all, all the best with the with the operation. I have I have every faith and, and confidence in you. You've you've done so much so far, and um, may all all horse racing strength be be with you. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Nick. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equuel Dubai. Well, still to come, my special guest, Sir Mark Todd. But first of all, we are heading to Midland to catch up on the news of a key contender for the Dante this week. And if that all goes well, he might end up being a key contender for the Kazoo Derby itself. Here is Charlie Johnston talking about Gear Up.
October was kind to you last year. Not only did Subjectivist win the pre-Royal Oak, but Gear Up also won the Grand Criterium de Saint-Cloud. That must have been a, a real thrill, not least for the fact that he was all but dismissed in the market. Yeah, um, yeah, he was outside of the field, I think, from memory. And um, yeah, we certainly didn't view him like that. We wouldn't have, wouldn't have taken him over there if we thought he was there just to make up the numbers. Um, he'd obviously suffered his only defeat in the in the Royal Lodge just before that, but that race really panned out, you know, as badly as it could have for him. A real slow pace and um, a test of speed, really, which just caught him out going into the dip, and he came out the other side strongly. But the race was all over. Um, so yeah, we went to we went to France, hopeful rather than confident. Probably is the is the best description, um, but certainly confident that he would stay well which in those conditions was going to be crucial and um, he's he's certainly a horse that you'd want on your side in a battle because he's got a, as he showed in the Acom and in 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 Saint Cloud he's got a fantastic attitude and um, yeah it was it was a it was a really important win for us you know um, there'd been a bit of a obviously subjectivist followed 24 hours later but at that point there'd been a bit of a a group one hiatus and um, to to deliver again at that level with a two-year-old with a new owner who just come into the yard and, and invested heavily um, you know it was a, it was a significant win on a lot of fronts and gave us a lot to to dream about through the winter I think quite unusually for a horse of his nature you learnt plenty about him in his two-year-old season fast ground seven furlongs in the Acom all but, all, all but bottomless ground over at Saint Cloud, over 10 furlongs. That must give you a lot of confidence going into this season that he's faced a lot in just four starts and he's going to face a hell of a lot more if he's going Dante's and Derby's. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think the, the versatility on the ground is always a, a nice thing to have in your armory that you don't have to be, to be watching weather forecasts in the, in the build-up to big races. Um, I think we're, you know, his stamina is we're taken for granted, really, basically uh, up to a mile and a half and beyond. That um, that's not going to be any issue to him at all. Um, I think having won a, having won a Group One as a two-year-old, that straight away kind of narrows your options down for the first half of um, your your three-year-old year. You're not going to want to to carry a big penalty in a lot of the trial races. So um, it's made it's made life easy for us, really, in that. Um, we were always going to be looking at the Dante and the Derby as his first two starts of the year, really, and he's had a very smooth preparation up, and, up until those races, and we're looking forward to seeing him out again now. I don't think it's any secret that the Derby is a particularly coveted thing across all yards, but particularly up here. You've gone close in it a, a few times. You've had some proper quality horses going there as well, the likes of Permian and, and DXB. Would he fit into that category? For sure, um, I think you could argue he's certainly, certainly what they achieved at two. He's actually a long way ahead of those horses. Um, you know, I think Permian was was rated around a hundred mark as he um, as he finished his two-year-old campaign, um, and and DXB. You know, they they were both horses that sort of moved up to that level through the early part of their three-year-old campaign. Um, this horse has, has already won a Group One, so. Um, I think it's the first time in a while that we've gone into um, into a three-year-old campaign with a with a Derby candidate that's won a Group One as a two-year-old. 
and um, yeah, I think he, as I've said a couple of times recently, I think he's always going to be underestimated a bit because he's not he's not a particularly flashy horse. You know, he's, he's not won his his races by wide margins. They've invariably been races where he's he's actually looked beat at many stages and and pulled them out of the fire. So um, uh, he might not have the the sort of sexy profile that a few of his rivals will have, but um, yeah, we you, know, you can't knock what he achieved last year, and um, yeah, we're, it's nice to have a horse like him to look forward to. Is he one of those horses that we hear a lot these days? He he keeps a bit back for himself. He does just enough, but he's more than up for a fight. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, we've just we've just seen him do a little bit of work there this morning, and um, I don't think it really matters what you you could put him put him with a horse rated 60 or a horse rated 100 and um, you'd get largely the, the same result. He certainly didn't work like our best two-year-olds um, through through most of last year. Um, he he saved it for when it mattered on the track. So, um, you know, we're, um, we certainly don't mind horses like that. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by our Bastiat Cruel Dubai. It's my great pleasure that I'm joined by one of the most celebrated Olympians, a man who competed at seven Olympic golds. He won gold at his first Olympics in 1984 in Los Angeles, and he went right the way through until 2016 with five medals. He also won five badmintons, or five, five burleys, I should say, and four badmintons. And here's just a little taster of his great success. Totally ignoring any possibilities that it might be dangerous. One more fence to jump, and mm. Mark Dodd is clear. And look at this, he's absolutely spot on. Tremendous horse and ride. Whoa, he's enjoying it. Very impressive test, and he finishes up with 44.2. And he takes it. The champion here at Burley, 1997, his fourth Burley success. Very responsive, very relaxed, listening to everything that he says. Mark Todd, uh, Diamond Red, well, how close is he going to be to the clock this time? And he's home, and he's clear. And now he is turning his hand to training racehorses once again. So, Mark Todd, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Nick. And some, some wonderful memories over such a, a long and, and glittering career. Um, dare I say it, did you, did you have to be prized out of, the, out of the saddle again when you retired for the, I think it was just the second time, or was it the third time? Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I first retired in, in um, 2000 and then got sort of, coerced back into it, I guess, a bit uh, in 2008. Um, but uh, the la when I retired, um, when was it? 2019, I was well, well ready to stop by then. And uh, you, you've said in the past that the, the adrenaline was something you were finding it very hard to, to get out of your system. How does now training racehorses compare? Is it, is it replicating that buzz sort of? Yeah, well, it does sort of, as you say. Um, you know, there's nothing quite like the buzz you get riding a good horse around a course like Babington or Burley, but the excitement of, of, of having a, a good race horse and, and running, running in decent races, which, which I haven't yet over here, but uh, I was fortunate enough to have it a bit in New Zealand when I was training there. Um, it's a different sort of buzz, but it still, it still gets the adrenaline going. 
I just want to go right back to the beginning, because one of the things I find most fascinating about you, unlike mm. most international um, event riders or you know, international horse people, you had no background in horses at all. And in, in 1984, you were winning an Olympic gold with your first ride there, you know, your horse of a lifetime charisma. How did, how did you go from there to there? Um, well, I, I just grew up with a passion for horses, and, and I was fortunate enough, my grandfather, uh, he had a farm, and, and although he was involved in horses, he had a, he had a farm hack, um, and he was an, his neighbour was a, a well-known New Zealand equestrian uh, called Kenny Brown, Kenny and Ann Brown, and um, I ended up borrowing a pony off them from the beginning, and, and that's sort of how it started. And, and um, I was fortunate enough, you know, my family sort of um, were able to sort of help me get going as, as best they could, and um, it just sort of went from there. How young were you when you knew that, that this was what you, you wanted to do? Well, uh, you know, back, back then when I first started, it was, it was never... I never thought of it as a, as a career. It was a sport. It was a hobby. I actually wanted to be a jockey. I was very small un, until I was about 16, and, and um, I used to ride track work um, for, for a local trainer. Um, but then I sort of started to grow, and, and I guess I could have gone down uh, the, the racehorse training route at an earlier stage, but I just loved riding so much that you know, I wanted to carry on with a riding career. And that early experience riding track work, did that stand you in good stead? I suppose it made you a bit different from your other, your other competitors, yeah, didn't um, it? Yeah, in fact, a lot of the New Zealand event riders have ridden track work at some stage or another. Blythe Tate was another one, and, and Janelle and Tim Price now, they've, they've all ridden racehorses. It gives you a very good um, idea of, uh, of speed and, mm. and travelling at speed and becoming comfortable with speed, and, uh, which I think... Um, you know, stands you in good stead uh, on the cross-country phase. Because all the people you mentioned are brilliant clock riders, aren't they? I mean, yeah. latterly, Tim and Janelle, but Blythe and yourself before that, just brilliant at riding to the clock. Yeah. Well, I mean, it also in New Zealand, it, get, it gets drummed into you. You know, you, you have to ride each furlong, whether it's 20 seconds of the furlong or 18 or 15. And, you know, if you're riding consistent track work, you have to be able to do that. And uh, so I guess that's a good way of teaching it. Um, did you did you ever deviate during your during your teenage years from from wanting to be around horses and on horses? Was there ever any suggestion of you going off and doing anything else? Um, well, funny enough, I was quite good at athletics, um, but it was never from for me. It was never a choice. You know, I, I just wanted to do horses, and uh, so that's that's the route I took. And you got your your agriculture diploma. Was that? Was that something that you sort of felt you needed to fall back on? Well, I, I was always going to be a farmer. Mm. Um, in fact, I was dairy farming for a while. I started off when I left school. I, I went and worked on a dairy farm, and um, and then eventually I took over my grandfather's farm and was was uh, milking cows there. Um, but I soon realised that that <laughs> wasn't really where my heart lay. So. I changed, changed direction. And, and in fact, um, when I did decide to do it, I sold up a herd of cows. I went and bought uh, two yearling fillies um, at, the, at the sales. And one of them was no good. And the other one was a, a very good race mare called Sounds Like Fun. And this was in the, in the 80s. Um, and uh, she was with a trainer called Jim Gibbs. And she was one of the top mares of, of, her, of her era. So you were getting a huge thrill from your involvement in racing, even even all the way back then. Yeah, and, and so much so that um, um, my wife and I got married in, in 19, uh, 1986, and um, she was running. She was due to run in the Oaks then, and it was a do we go on 
do we go to, on honeymoon to the Maldives or do we stay and watch the Oaks? And um, my wife's never forgiven me that we actually stayed and watched you the Oaks. You did stay and watch the Oaks. You're, you're a very lucky man, Mark. Very lucky man. This was two years after you'd won your first Olympic gold on, on Charisma and you were still a, a very young guy then in the, the early stage of your career. You I always make, it amuses me, it, you always make it sound as though things just kind of happened. But the amount of work required to get yourself and, a, and an equine athlete to an Olympic Games on another continent and to win gold. That shouldn't be underestimated, should it? Well, I, I guess, but I mean, it's... Um, in some ways, I guess I'm, I, I am a good planner. In other ways, things just do seem to happen. And, and you know, I think you, you set a goal and then, then you set a, a path towards achieving that goal. And, and I guess that's what I did do. And I've never been afraid to work hard to, to get there and, and uh, because, you know, working with horses, it, it doesn't always seem like it's hard work um, because it's, you know, it's what you love doing. So tell me a little bit about um, Charisma for those who, who aren't old enough to remember or, or didn't have an interest in, in eventing in, in those days. He was a, well, he was a legend, really. He was. He was an amazing little horse. He was, he was actually 15 16th thoroughbred and, and the other 16th was... French draft horse, Percheron, so where that came from in New Zealand, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> but he was only, he was only 15 3, and he was, he was a fantastic looking little horse. He was incredibly sound, he was a great athlete, and he just loved, loved the job. And I guess, you know, his, his two strengths were the, the dressage phase. He was very good in the dressage phase, and he was brilliant cross country. Um, even at the age of 16, when he went, uh, when we won our second gold medal, um, he had the fastest time around the, the cross-country um, endurance phase, and, and the vet said he had the best recovery rate of, of all the horses there that day. So. Amazing. Absolutely amazing horse, and, and he won two, two Olympic golds. And the second one was almost, almost I'm not going to say a cakewalk, but it was almost easier than the first one. It was, yeah. He, yeah. Uh, you know, he, he led the dressage, and then um, I think we ended up winning... We always used to have to have to have a pole in hand going into the show jumping because he used to like jumping by braille and, and, and occasionally he got it wrong and would have one down and um, I think we ended up, we went into the show jumping phase with three rails in hand uh, which was a fairly comforting thought um, going into that final day and I think he had one down so, but still one. You say he was a sort of 15th, 16th thoroughbred, did you say? So yeah. almost a, a complete thoroughbred. Yeah. And you had great success on thoroughbreds through most of the sort of first phase yeah. of your, your eventing career. What can they do for you that other horses can't? Well, I just love their minds. You know, they're, they're, they were great. And in those days, when you had the long format three-day, when you had the, the roads and tracks and the steeplechase, um, <clears throat> they, had this, they had the stamina to, to do it. And the, and the warm bloods used to struggle um, and, and going around the cross country, you know, you never really got out of third gear. Um, and, and their poor old warm bullets, you know, they, they were at full throttle the whole way and, and, and quite often didn't quite, you know, they, they couldn't go that fast for that long. You know, the, back in those days, the cross countries used to be 12 or 13 minutes and um, you really had to have something with an engine. After you have a horse like that, who you've described as a, as a horse of a lifetime, how hard is it then to to adapt, to try and find new horses, to, 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 to bring on youngsters. How hard did you find that at the sort of back of the 80s, early 90s? For, for eventing? Yeah. Um, well, I, we used to buy a lot of horses out in New Zealand. We, we used to, I don't know, we looked all over the place. There was, um, 
you know, Ireland produced a lot of very good event horses back then. The, the you know the, the classic seven eighths thoroughbred with a bit of Irish draft, and and they were excellent as well. Um, what would you say was your your single greatest achievement as a as an event rider? Doing it so long, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and why? <laughs> but um, I don't know. I think. One, one of, obviously, the two gold medals were, were amazing with, with charisma, but I think one of the things that um, made me most proud was coming back after, after eight years off um, with a horse that Sir Peter Vella um, purchased for me, a horse called Land, Land Vision, and, and going back to badminton um, and, and winning that in 2011, um, I don't know how many years after I, after my first win, and uh, you know everybody thought that you know because I'd had eight years off, it was going the sport had moved on. It was going to be very difficult for me to be competitive. So to to go there and, and win that was I felt was a, you know a huge achievement. Yeah, eighty I think was your first badminton. So yeah, thirty-one yeah. years, and the fifteen years since since the previous one. Yeah, and that that must have been a, an amazing day. And to what extent did you really feel that? The warmth of the whole the whole equestrian community. Um, well, I mean, it is a wonderful community, you know, especially in in eventing, um, and it was great. It was great to be welcomed back with open arms, and and um, I can re- I can remember like my good mate Lucinda Lucinda Green. Um, you know, she was we were obviously talked about coming back and and all the rest of us and and. And she was at the arena as I walked out of the show jumping, and I just went, you know, how did that happen? <laughs> and uh, so it was, the reception was tremendous. And there was talk, wasn't there, after, after sort of 16, that you might kick on even, even longer, and you decided to, to, to call it a day. Why, why ultimately did you decide not to, not to press on to... Oh, it would have been, been this year's Olympics, it I suppose, been in this Tokyo. Year's Olympics, yeah. Um, I've been cutting down on numbers, and, and although I had a couple of horses that, uh, I did have a couple of horses that were real, could have been real chances, and one of them was a little horse called McLaren that, that reminded me an awful lot of charisma, um, and he's now gone to Janelle Price, um, who's probably a much better fit for him, because he was even smaller than charisma. Um, but, uh, you know... It's the motivation as much as anything. You know, you can't compete at that top level if you're not putting 100% in. And I didn't feel I was putting 100% in. Um, I wasn't getting any younger. And then I had this sort of out of the blue proposal from Sir Peter Vella, um, who had um, bought Eminent outright. Mm. And initially he came to me, and Peter sent him to me and said, you know, would you just look after him? He's coming back to... New Zealand um, to go to stud, um, so I, I had him and we had him at our place. And um, the next thing, he sort of rings up and says, "Well, you know, why don't you take him to Australia? We, we think we might race in there. Why don't you take him there and, and we'll give him a couple of runs in Group One races?" And <laughs> it was, you know, never one to shirk a challenge. It took me a wee while to think about it, but. Um, then we sort of said, oh, well, we'll have a go. But then the logistics of, of, of that happening started to kick in. You know, I didn't have a licence. Yeah. I had to get a licence. Um, luckily, it was just within the 10-year 
um, time limit of when I'd previously held a license, which enabled me to take a few shortcuts. Um, but the, um, the BHA were very good over here and, and helping me push it through. And, and it literally, um, the horse had to be nominated for the Ramvet Stakes in Australia and by a certain day. And the trainer had to have a license to be able to nominate it. And, and it came down to about two days. I think had two days. My license came through and we were able to nominate the horse um, for the race. And he finished second, didn't he? He finished second in that race. So it's yeah. a good start. It was a good decent start, start to a it training helps career. When you have a very good horse. Yeah. <laughs> and so from there, was it? Did it just feel right? I mean, I knew, know you trained a bit before in the kind of in that interim period between the, the the eventing careers, but did it just feel like the right move? It 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 did, and you know, like I say, you know, I'd, I'd trained in New Zealand, and we'd had a reasonable amount of success there. Um, but you know, Eng England or Britain is is to me, it has always been the home of, of racing, if you like, much like it's the home of eventing. Um, you know, people in other countries probably disagree, but, I mean, you have such a wonderful history of racing over here and and, and everything. And, and I just thought, you know, it would be wonderful to, and, a, and a, you know, another challenge to see if I can, um, you know, train some winners here. You like giving yourself stern challenges, don't you? Getting, <laughs> getting to the 84 Olympics, yeah. making the comeback you described as a bit of a dare... I mean, this is a this is a, a big challenge. Still, I, I'm I'm interested in how you feel as someone who's achieved so much and has been right at the pinnacle of your sport, having to almost work your way up through the well, ranks I am. again. You know, I'm, I'm starting at the bottom again. You know, um, you know, my previous life—that's all history now, isn't it? It's, you can almost say it was last century, <laughs> um, and and. And as you know, people say, you know, um, you know, you've, you've got to look forward. You've got to have, you've got to have plans and, and keep moving forward. And, and horses, I love doing. And, and um, this is a new challenge. I've been very fortunate that um, Sir Peter Vella, um, you know, has backed me with horses. And and then other contacts that we've had through eventing for years, like um, Madeline Lloyd Webber. Mm -hmm. um, I've known Madeline forever. In fact, um, I used to used to teach her years and years ago, um, and I and I rode a horse for her at badminton when she was having her first child, um, Lady Bamford and Sir Anthony Bamford. Um, we were actually we lived on their estate for a while, and I rode an event horse for them, and they've they've sent me a horse and. So those, those connections we've had for a long time, um, and obviously, you know, they're, they're very big into racing, and so uh, it's um, having those sort of people um, being able to get behind you has been a big bonus. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Cruel Dubai.